1: The show where Emily and I uh, read the Bible and talk about it, and whatever, whatever else happens or, to come to mind, <laughs> whatever else we happen to think of, yeah. So uh, last time you were here, last time we were here, <laughs> we were talking about Psalm 89, and we talked about how it covered God's rule in the heavens, mm-hmm. and how the we're moving on to the part where it talks about God's rule in earth, and how that uh, indicates that Jesus. Is the ruler of both things because he is divine and human?
0: Absolutely. And is that is that a good summary? Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, I think the only thing I would add is, um, you know, this all begins with the Davidic rule, where we get to see him foreshadowing what Jesus will do. So, you know, throughout the Bible, we kind of get these these little cycles of foreshadowing that allow us to see, okay, if a human can go this far. And a human can accomplish this much, how much more can happen whenever God is embodied in a man and, you know, takes his place as the Messiah, as the King. And so the Davidic rule really becomes the model and the foundation for what Jesus is going to accomplish with his life, death, and resurrection. And so this has really been a lot of fun for me because, like I said, we get to, you know, it, it, covers everything. We've talked about the prophets. We've talked about Revelation. We've talked about Genesis. we talked about Jesus and the genealogy. I mean, we've hit all these different little high points, and you really can see why the Bible has to be an inspired book, because it does fit together this way. And the argument's against the Bible, and this is just a freebie, the arguments against the Bible can only be sustained if you're willing to take a scripture out of context, to look at one little sliver at a time. When you put it all together, it really is greater than the sum of its parts. So, and I love what you can see when you begin to pull all these things in tension. So, we had ended up, we'd finished up with verses five through eight, and we talked about how those really laid the foundation. God is the lord over all the universe the divine council that spiritual realm and as such he has the right to rule on the earth and david's earthly reign can only be sponsored by god and it's an extension of god's rule in heaven onto the earth and they really do serve as the basis for the earthly rule and when we get start to move into verse 19 through 9 through 14 sorry 9 through 14 now we're going to see some things about the earthly rule and how God's rule in heaven is expressed through David to this earth. So, verse 9, You rule the raging of the sea. When the waves rise, you still them. 10, You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scatter your enemies with your mighty arm. So, both Rahab and the sea.
1: Okay, so anyone who's been listening to us for a while knows that the sea often is uh, a chaos symbol, right? Mm -hmm. So, But I I have a question here. Is this any kind of thing like when we... Oh my goodness, now they sound happy. Um, Sorry, the children are...
0: (laughs) This is part of being with us. There's always kids. There's kids around.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so um, when Jesus and the disciples... Like the story of Jesus calming Mm -hmm. the storm, Mm -hmm. is that one of those things that when that happened that the disciples were supposed to go, oh... This is God. This is God. We thought that was... (laughs) we we thought that was just a figure of speech.
0: Yeah, no. I mean it, it really it, that was a symbolic act revealing exactly who he was. Why? Because only God can st- calm the chaos. Only God can overcome the chaos. Right. And so, yeah, absolutely. And everything you have every time you have Jesus dealing with the sea, you're supposed to have all of this information from the Old Testament in the background of your mind running through it i mean god can Mm -hmm. part the sea he can walk on the sea why because ultimately chaos like everything else serves him
1: so you know and what's funny to me uh, is the you you did the the parting of the sea the walking on the sea calming the sea well i guess jesus didn't actually part waters but you know those were the things and what, when you said that, what I thought of was uh, when he tells the disciples to cast their nets on the other side. Mm-hmm. That was the one to me, I'm like, okay. So yeah, he even, even commands the things that, are, that live, live in the, the sea. chaos. Uh, yeah, so.
0: And, and you, would have, you would have gotten that message loud and clear. So when people say, oh, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You know what? Let's, let's put aside all the times that he did actually claim to be God. Let's look at the things he did that demonstrated he was god. Right. You know, we can well I mean
1: I mean you know the the walking on the water thing. That's a great one there and I wish I could remember the guy's name who was on Naked Bible who did the um they were doing the genres of the Bible and he did the Bible, mm. the, the gospels as humor. Uh-huh. And was talking about this incident with the disciples and they see Jesus walking on the water and they say, "Oh, this must be a ghost." And Everyone's supposed to make fun of them at that point because in ancient times, ghosts can't cross water. Mm-hmm. And so you've got two things going on there. One is you've got disciples who, you know, the uh, a reader should be going, These guys are so How stupid, so, are they so ill educated? <laughs> they don't even know that ghosts don't cross water. Right. Number one. And number two, you're supposed to go, Oh, since ghosts don't cross water, then what's this guy doing walking on it? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, so you're, he's saying that he's obviously not a ghost, not a shade, not a spirit. It's, mm-hmm. He's something greater
0: than that. Exactly. So, he, was, he was a god because only gods had the ability to cross water like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, and seeing that happen would be miraculous enough, but if you have that background, <laughs> it, it opens the story up, and you're like, oh, this is what's happening here. Exactly. And, and that's why the disciples were so
0: marveled at it too this is why they could give their lives for him Mm -hmm. it wasn't just that they said oh you know what i think he's made some pretty good arguments and he actually just might be who he claims he is no they believed because they had seen and experienced this with him and you know that that's a huge difference and and it can explain why it wasn't just the disciples it was so many others who joined with them these are just the guys we got the names of yeah, And so these other people had seen this and they knew what those acts meant. Why did they know what the, what the acts meant? Because they knew their Bibles. Yeah. They knew the history they knew, and they didn't just know the Bibles. They knew the history of the culture around them because the chaos symbols in most cultures, the, the ruling Supreme God had to kill and subdue and overcome chaos. And then all of the ritual observances, they were done in order to keep chaos at bay. Which that's pretty interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. The inferior god mm-hmm. has to subdue and destroy chaos. Right. And but you have God walking up on the chaos, working with the chaos, commanding the chaos and accomplishing to do
0: his bidding. Accomplishing everything. <laughs> In spite of the chaos. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there's even this beautiful picture in uh, Genesis 1 uh, where God is brooding over the waters, the chaos, mm. you know, the, the earth has become tohu bohu, uh, the, the void and, and empty, and God is brooding over the face of the deep and the, the waters. And so it, and that is that idea of a mother bird on her nest that out of this chaos, he's going to bring forth this great creation mm-hmm. and so it's not something to be feared and there's this great line in uh leviathan uh, i'm sorry in job where the girls are leading leviathan another great chaos symbol on a leash i love that yeah that's one <laughs> I mean, of my
1: favorites is can you can, can you put the leviathan on a leash to be, be led by little girls
0: well and that's what makes even um, the parting of the red sea so great not only does god like split the waters And divide the chaos so that that the nation of Israel could come across. Pharaoh, whose main job, his sole job pretty much in all of Egypt, was to make sure that chaos did not rise up from the deep and overwhelm Egypt as a country and therefore take over and destroy the world. Mm -hmm. He is literally destroyed by the one thing he's supposed to be able to counter. He's supposed to be able to keep at bay. And so it, it really is a demonstration. Pharaoh's not a god. The God of Israel is the God. right? And so it, it's, it, it's a great image for somebody who knows what's being said. And so when, um, when we have this here, we're not talking about the sea as in the salty waters that cover most of the earth are evil. What they represent was something to be feared. Mm-hmm. And, so, and if you've ever been out on the water in a big storm, you know what fear is. I mean, there's. That's just not.
1: Yeah, nah.
0: I generally stay off the water. I burn easy. (laughs) I haven't been on the oceans in a big storm, but I have been on some pretty rough rivers in a tiny boat, and it can get terrifying. So, um, we have some similar language. This is in Isaiah 51 verses nine and ten. Awake, awake! Put on strength. O oh, arm of the Lord, awake as in the days of old and generations long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces? Who, pre- uh, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass? Then in Job twenty-six twelve, by his power he stilled the sea, by his understanding he shattered Rahab, by his wind the heavens were made fair, and his hand pierced the fiery serpent. So you know So I'm
1: gonna guess this is not the Rahab in the book of Joshua.
0: That's a really good point. Yes, this is not Rahab from the book of Joshua. This was Rahab in the book of Joshua, she was a woman. She was definitely a prostitute. She was not a chaos monster. She was not a chaos monster, but she was probably named for a chaos monster. So uh, I mean, I know for some children that's quite fitting. I've known a few of those, but you got to kind of wonder about parents who deliberately <laughs> choose that. And so... Um, I love my little chaos monsters. Oh. <laughs> no, they're, they're amazing. But I think I think what we see in these passages, there's definitely the connection within the scripture that of Rahab and the sea. And there's also the connection of the red sea being um, parted and stilled and calmed for the purpose of providing redemption for Israel. So Isaiah 37, uh, chapter 30, verse seven, Egypt's health is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. So not only do you have these connections rahab is used as a synonym for egypt and so like i said god uses the symbols that egypt is scared of that chaos to actually establish his dominance over the the god of egypt in the in the form of pharaoh Hmm. and the thing is like we were talking chaos monsters are not something god has to destroy and defeat in order to create god's never scared of chaos You're Uh,
1: you're saying he he can still carry out his meticulous plan, even if he's not playing both sides of the chessboard?
0: Yeah, yeah. God, here's the really cool thing about redemption, and I think so many people forget this. Okay, redemption says no matter how big the sin is, no matter how big the wound is— God's big enough to redeem it. And when you know you're big enough to redeem it and to restore, no matter how big those things are, you can let them happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's only a God who's scared that he might, oh, they went too far. I don't know if I can save that one that has to be afraid of something getting out of control. Mm-hmm. And so that this is the thing. God gets have at it that's exactly what he does in deuteronomy 32 8 and 9 when he's talking about what he did at babel when he allotted the lands of the earth have at it go for it you know parents do this here's a good example we do this with toddlers we do this seven, eight, nine, ten. 10 when do we start really saying don't do that don't cross that line that's where there's going to be major consequences it's when our kids get older and actually do something that we may not be able to save them from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's when they uh, are driving that car, it's when they're running around with their friends that we make these really hard and fast rules. Now, you want to eat the jalapeno pepper? Have at it. I've warned you. I've told you that's not going to be good. And so why do we do that? Because we know it's not, we can mitigate any damage it might inflict on our child. Right. And so there, that should give us a good understanding of how big and how great God is as a parent. So, um, you know, but it, it all comes back to all of creation, including chaos mm-hmm. was created by God. He is God and Lord over all. He's not scared of it. And this, this is what the Psalmist is praising him for. Right. And so, Verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth is yours of the world, uh, the earth is yours of the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. Verse 12, the north and the south, you have created them, Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. So the psalmist confirms everything.
1: Yeah, I, I do have, I have a okay. question here uh-uh. in, <laughs> in in uh, the verses we just read, heaven is, uh, in ESB in the JPS. Um, heaven is singular. I think it's in that one. The hev- In 12, it says the heaven is yours in the JPS. And in the ESB, it's, um, of course, the verse before that. It's 11. The verses are off. <laughs> right. But in the ESB, it says the heavens are yours. I'm wondering if there's anything, is there anything to the plural and the singular in that?
0: Uh, no. And I left my phone with your daughter. Um, so yeah, might look up in the Hebrew and see what it says. Yeah.
1: I'll, I'll check. Yeah. I'll check Bible hub real quick.
0: Because in the Jewish tradition and well, even in the new Testament cr- tradition, cause we forget that Paul did some writing about this. There are levels to heaven. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that, you know, as you progress upwards, uh, Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven within most Jewish traditions, there's seven levels of, of heaven. Uh, the highest one being where God reigns, the lowest one being the closest to the earth that we might interact with as human beings. And so and there's a real complex uh, way that these heavens play off each other. Uh, so I, you know, I don't necessarily know that there is any kind of... It's mayim. Mayim. It ends with a mem, I with a, a box. <laughs> Let me uh, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll, it's transliterated, my okay. Yeah, so yeah. So I, I think that's kind of interesting. Plural. Then why would they render
1: it singular in the JPS? I don't unless it's know. a typo.
0: Oh, well, that's possible. Yeah, no, it, it should be plural. And most of the time, it, it, when we talk about heavens in um in Hebrew, we're talking plural, and it will say heavens. Matter of fact, when we talk about the highest heavens, who are the the most high heavens, um. it's actually the Hebrew there usually is the heavens of the heavens to emphasize the fact that there are multiple layers in heaven, but that's going to be a discussion for another day (laughs) because that one gets really interesting. Uh, Really enjoy that. But the point being that within this, that it would be um, this all encompassing language. And so it isn't just about Israel, it's about heavens and the whole earth, mm-hmm. the north and the south. well, you know the, here's the thing the the north and the south that's you can't escape that in a globe it it's it's a cycle right. I mean, so it's always you're going to one or the other. It's a boundary with that end. uh Tabor and Herman are a little harder to quantify. uh these are mountains in the northern part of um Israel. Mm-hmm. Tabor, this is the, the location of the battle between Barak and Sisera when Deborah mm-hmm. was leading them into battle. Uh, this is where Gideon's brothers were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where Saul met the three men going to Bethel, that, and he received the gifts of food after he'd been anointed by Samuel. It, it's noted because it's a huge mountain. It's tall, it's big.
1: Yeah, and
0: so we, we
1: probably have here some poetic imagery do, to do with as high up as you can imagine.
0: Yes, as far as humanity can ascend.
1: Yeah, and and we also I also find that kind of interesting because if mountains and high places would have been where they considered heaven to meet earth mm-hmm. and it was where the Battle of Sisera and... Mm-hmm. uh,
0: uh, uh, uh Barak. Barak
1: <laughs> happened, you know, then you have Deborah singing her song about right. the stars moving from their courses. Uh huh. It would have been, at this point, or thought from their courses. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I should get it to the right, right parlance. <laughs> um, that this would have been the location she would have been singing about when that happened. It's pretty so interesting. So you
0: see how it begins to kind of flow together. And that's the beauty that we were just talking about. And so, you know, the um, this this mountain, we, we don't have specifically that it, anything, you know, any kind of cult behavior. And when I say cult, I'm just talking ritual worship behavior for Yahweh happened there, but it was a notable mountain and was associated with victories. It was associated with the judges rising up and and taking back what belonged to Israel. And now Hermon's a little harder to quantify. Um, There's a much larger tradition surrounding this mountain, uh, so much so that Dr. Heiser has written a book called Reversing Hermon, which just Buy the book, read it, spend the money. It's worth the money. Uh, I read Unseen Realm first. Yeah, yeah, that will help. And so, I, you know, I, I can't go into it, but I want to hit some high points. We could, the main point is it's always been a spiritually charged location,
1: right? And isn't it isn't it considered the place where where the Watchers descended? onto the earth to take the human women exactly
0: this is where they bound themselves together with the oath where they all said hey we're in this together not one of us is going to say well he made me do it we're all Mm -hmm. going to take the blame equally
1: yeah and if you want to hear someone go over that information Miriam Brand has an episode on just that uh that's in the book of Enoch right Uh, yes yes
0: yeah. yeah so that's not part of the scripture but if you Uh, take Enoch as kind of a commentary and expansion of Genesis 6 explaining the events because when you read Genesis 6 you've got four little verses not a lot explained right and so um, it sounds like the writer of Genesis really expected his readers to know what was going on there and it ends we've talked about Enoch before not part of the canon has not had part the protection of being part of the canon. And It may not deserve to be part of the canon, but it is what the readers of the Bible, or the people who lived during Jesus' time, the readers of the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. would have understood to be part of the truth. We find quotes from it with Peter, Paul, Jude, all of these people talk about it. There's uh, points where uh, certain scholars think Jesus alludes to it, so it did have some bearing on the New Testament understanding of the events of the Old Testament.
1: Right. And we and we can basically track down when, it, when roughly it was written, mm-hmm. as in when it was collected. Right. But as we all know, there's such an oral tradition in ancient cultures, these who stories, knows. who knows how far back they go.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And traditionally, it is attributed to Enoch from Genesis, who walked with God and then was not, and that he was allowed to return with these great insights into the heavenly realities.
1: Right. So yeah there's there's lots of interesting information in there and, and to me just the fact that it's quoted by so many sources in the bible so many exactly uh, so many writers i think we can't just write it off as yeah so as, just
0: be uh, wise
1: well, yeah.
0: Yeah. Use some discernment when you read it. Um, so now, and beyond just the Jewish and Christian tradition, we have archaeological evidence of over 20 temples in the immediate vicinity of Hermon. Right. And these temples, you know, they represent gods from Pan to Zeus. And there's a deep grotto at the base of the mountain, it goes underneath the, the mountain, and it was believed to be the entrance to hell itself. And if you know the story of Enoch, that's where the watchers were bound and chained uh, until uh, everything happens. So we won't get into the, all that story, but you can go read it. This is also the place where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Right. And so um, most of us are familiar with that. That's when she, Peter confesses and Jesus says, You know, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, which is known where to be they were located, yeah, shall not be able to withstand it. And so. This is one of the the two mountains proposed for the transfiguration. And it's interesting, the two mountains that people suggest might be where the transfiguration occurred were Hermon and Tabor. So the two mountains here mentioned in the psalm. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. And so. So the mountain's not named in the. Not really. We There's some debate on which mountain it really was. Because I thought I had always been,
1: I thought people had always taught that it was the Mount Olives, but I guess they're conflating that with the... Mm-hmm.
0: We've got Mount Olives spoken of so many times. Yeah. <laughs> huh. As,
1: yeah. I didn't realize it wasn't named. I, I guess I need to read more closely next time I go through.
0: Yeah. No, it, it, it's it's things that we think we know, and that's, that's what blows your mind when you're reading scripture. And so you've got This really, you know, like I said, spiritually charged, I think is the right way to describe this mountain and not like, not just for Jews and Christians, for everyone. There was something about this place. And I mean, there's a part of me that would like to go visit and it's like, to see this place that has had so much significance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think at one point when we're not doing a book study, we may just have to look at Hermon and not rehearse Dr. Heiser's material, but actually look at it in the Bible and and see where all it's mentioned and sure. where it comes into play. I think that'd be a fun study. But if um, perhaps Tabor uh, was a place of worship and it, and Hermon was reclaimed by Jesus uh, that was uh, you know as a place now to to remember and celebrate his rule on the earth then we have two very significant mountains named in this psalm right. uh, and plus you also have that that juxtaposition of the heights of Tabor and that deep grotto underneath Hermon's encompassing the heights and the depth and so we but we could also be having this contrast between good and evil mountains the mm-hmm. so Tabor would be good and Hermon would be evil and You know, the fact that Jesus would say even this evil mountain or, I don't know, this chaotic place Mm -hmm. could be reclaimed and serve to teach people about who I am and what I'm capable of. And so I I really... I really like the depth of information you can get just knowing the history of this geography. Geography is important in the Bible. Right. And and I got to tell you, and that's one of my downfallings because I really hate looking at geography sometimes because it, to me it does get boring, but when you find those nuggets, man, they're good nuggets. Mm-hmm. They, this isn't just uh, you know, uh, just a little flash in the pan that they're real nuggets of right. information. So, um, now, the the elements used in this praise to God here in Psalms is actually the same as elements used in other Near East, Near Eastern Psalms of praise to their God. Because all the cultures, or most of the cultures, had Psalms of praise to their kings. Right. And uh, when they would write these Psalms, they would write these Psalms to the king of the gods. So, earthly creation in every... Every religion was evidence of God's heavenly authority. Now, unlike other a gods, there is no God in heaven. Like when I say that, there's not a particular God in heaven, a particular God who rules on earth. God rules both heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a huge distinction too. And I think we forget about that. that. Oh yeah. Okay. Sometimes Zeus did come down and interact with humanity. Usually it was to rape women. Go figure. Uh, when you get back to Genesis 6, it makes perfect sense that this is Zeus's legacy. right? Uh, but most of the time Zeus reigned from the heavens and other gods took care of things here on earth. Mm-hmm. And this is the same of uh, the religions that predated Greek mythology, but you know, Greek mythology is just a really good example because people are f- usually familiar with that. Sure. And so, th- when the psalmist says, "You know, God's heaven," you know, reigns over heaven and earth, he's actually emphasizing God's total authority, and this isn't just pretty flowery language. And it's an appropriate backdrop for a holy heavenly God who becomes holy human on earth and that he would have this duality of heaven and earth Mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Yeah, There was never any kind of distinction there. So um, verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high as your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, steadfast love. Again, that second Samuel reference and faithfulness go before you. So, God is uh, mighty. He He's the words here is Gabor, he can accomplish his attention. So, if you know the word Gabor, it goes back to Genesis six Gibareem. We have God is greater, being shown greater than even the Gibareem of Genesis six, mm. and his throne is founded. <clears throat> excuse me, on the attributes expected to be manifest in the throne of David, righteousness, justice, steadfast love, faithfulness. God's attributes have worldwide implications. And that's uh, according to Beth Tanner, who uh, I'm going to be quoting some more from her. She's in the uh, New International uh, Bible commentary that I've got. Yeah. Uh, She does some great work. But these attributes, as found both in God and David, are going to impact the whole world. Is basically what boils down to verse 15 blessed are the people who know the feastal shout who walk O lord in the light of your face who exalt in your name all day and in righteousness are are exalted so the the sages connect feastal shout with rosh hashanah which makes sense as rosh hashanah is connected with the coronation of the kings which we again talked about in a previous episode in verse 18, God is specifically celebrated as the king. So blessed are the people who experience God's reign in their life. So it, there's a there's a fitting paraphrase for the, that verse. If you know enough to celebrate God's king, then you probably actually acknowledge him as your king. Right. So uh, verse 17, for you are... The, The glory of their strength by your favor, your horn is exalted. So we should remember these words, your horn is exalted, because these are the words that set everything in motion. David's reign began with the prophecy of Hannah back in 1 Samuel 2. And so her words from uh, 1 Samuel 2.10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah's prophecy of David and the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I know it's been a long time since we were in First Samuel, and that we've almost forgotten Hannah was the one who kicked all this off. But if you don't have Hannah, you don't have David. And the fact that David is now quote or the psalmist is now quoting Hannah's prophecy, we're seeing that they see this as a continuation of what happened there. Right. So verse eighteen. For our shields belong to the Lord, our King, the Holy One of Israel. The kings of Israel are often referred to as the shield of Israel because the king's job is to defend Israel. So they they embody that, and um, the king belo- the kings of Israel are yeah they belong to the God of Israel, and that's. That's the main point. Now, Tanner sees a unification of three themes in these first ni- first nineteen verses of the psalm. We have the Exodus, which was uh, alluded to. We have the land, the actual geography, the the earth and dirt of Israel, and we have kingship. And so, God has proven that He rules over all the other gods of the earth because He's had victory over the Egyptian gods of the Exodus. In mm-hmm. in the Exodus, uh, we have the. Uh, God's rule confirmed in the conquest of Canaan, and then we have God manifest in the anointing of David. And so we're going to pick up these themes in David's response in um, 2 Samuel 7 uh, when we get there, because David's going to mention God's supremacy over the other gods. That's Mm -hmm. going to be in verse 22. Uh, he's going to talk about the deliverance from, from the Egyptian gods. That's going to be in verse 23. We're going to talk about the establishment of the nation of of Israel, that, that geography, the boundaries being set. That's going to be in verse 24. And David's going to be established as king in verse 25. So David's following the same pattern we're seeing within the psalm. Mm-hmm. And so throughout the Bible, though, these themes are united, and they're affirming and they're reaffirming that the spiritual realities of God as supreme reigning first in heavens and again on the earth in the person of the king. And I know I've been saying that a lot, but this is what the psalm is trying to, to drive home. So um, basically what it boils down to, if you don't have a victorious God, you don't have an Israel, so you don't have a king. Because you can't establish a king that represents the God of Israel in a land where other gods are the rulers. Because remember, the, the Canaanite gods had to be driven out after they'd been, Israel had been freed from the gods of Egypt. So verse 19, of old you spoke to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him. Now, we... Okay, now there's okay. a very different in the JPS. Okay, what's the JPS? Um, you
1: spoke of the faithfulness of, of ones in a vision and conferred power...
0: Wait, is that the wrong one? Um,
1: the, the verses are off. So yeah, they're hard. one
0: off. Uh, so that should be verse 20, I think, in the JPS. Yeah. Okay, that's what I'm reading. It says,
1: then you spoke of your faithful ones in a vision and said, I have conferred a power upon the war- oh, warrior... I have exalted one chosen out of the people. Mm -hmm. So
0: that's. Yeah. um,
1: Of old,
0: you spoke in a vision to your godly one. It's, I I looked it up, uh, that godly one there, because here's what I was hoping. I was really hoping that whenever I looked it up, the godly one would be in the feminine. Mm -hmm. And that we could take this right back to Hannah. Uh, it's not. It, it is in the the second masculine plural. Okay. And so uh, it should. It, godly ones actually makes sense, and more sense than the e, uh, the ESV because it shouldn't be singular right there. And you know, David, the the coming king, the 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 anointed one, has been somebody who's been promised for a very long time to Israel at this point. And a lot of prophets have been looking forward to the the um, to the to king, not necessarily the Messiah. Hannah's the first one to say the Messiah. But we have several people who are involved in this prophetic act of bringing around a kingship. Uh, we've got Samuel, we've got Nathan, we've got Gad, we've got Heman, we've got Ethan. All of these people very well could be included as possibilities for who, who gave this prophecy, who God was speaking to. Okay because a godly one would have been uh, would have been a prophet. And so again we got another identifier in this verse with David my servant and which again is how God has identified David to Nathan in mm-hmm. the in the prophecy in 2nd Samuel. Uh, matter of fact that's how it opens up when God begins speaking to Nathan he says go and tell my servant uh, go and tell my servant David. So Verse 21, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm shall strengthen him. So uh, God's saying that, you know, he's establishing his strength and arm with this king. Verse 22, and the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. So um, when we look back at Second Samuel, verse 10, the last of verse 10, so in the first part of verse 11 and the violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges are over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Again, we talked about this earlier, but it bears repeating violent men is sons of wickedness. And that's both here in second Samuel or the wicked here. in uh, Sorry, the wicked men back in Samuel or the wicked here in uh, Psalms 89. Mm-hmm. I don't know why the ESV translators were not consistent um, you have to stray from the original Hebrew in order to add the word uh men in Samuel okay uh it it just it, it doesn't make sense um so you also have to add it in psalm eighty nine here to get the word again um uh, the implied wicked yeah, they omit they don't add the word men here sorry, they do um they don't
1: <laughs> I Sing got lost it.
0: in I lost in my notes in, in Psalm 89. It just reads the wicked, and it doesn't tell you whether they're wicked men, but that kind of is the implication. But if right. you read the whole psalm, you realize it has to be talking about spiritual beings. It's a spiritual reality. That's what we've been dealing with right. this whole time. And so when you read that back into Samuel 7, if it, if Zamora is right, which I think he is, Psalm 89 explains Samuel 7, then this has to be talking, God's saying, and the evil, the wicked beings mm-hmm. shall not, Afflict, uh, shall not shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people in Israel. So, he he is saying, I am the spiritual shield that's going to hold my kingdom in place, and this is the, my promise to David. Mm. And I don't understand why there's any kind of inconsistency when it's only used three times. This this phrase is found three times in the whole Bible. It's not like you have a bunch of different um, circumstances and context demanding that you kind of tweak it to make it read better. Right. It, you have three times where it, it, there's no, there, there really is no purpose in smoothing out the translation from what the Hebrew says. If if they had just kept from the sons of the wicked, mm-hmm. It would still read, it would still make sense in the English, and plus you get that connection back to Genesis 6 yeah, and the Divine Council worldview, Deuteronomy 32.
1: (laughs) It almost seems like there's some obscuring of that trying to go on in a lot of places
0: anyway. There is. I think it makes people uncomfortable. I I, I think... I think it bothers people to think that the spiritual realm actually becomes a player, and mm-hmm. not just ancient history. Because if it's around an ancient history and it's it's impacting the reality of of human life and and existence, what does it mean for us? Right. You know, we now we have to grapple with where we are within this spiritual interplay, and. You know, for a lot of people, the only exposure they've had to a spiritual realm has either been a, a wild and crazy church service that looks completely out of control and chaotic mm-hmm. or horror movies and things that terrify them. So why in the world would they want to look at this and accept that it might actually be a reasonable, logical conclusion that the spiritual realm is still active today? Right. Right. Yeah. So, I, well, I don't
1: see how you can come to the conclusion that the spiritual realm is inactive when the whole Bible is full of st- spiritual activity.
0: But you know we just we stop with where we 're comfortable, and I'm perfectly comfortable with Jesus being god i'm perfectly comfortable with him working miracles. These make me feel all warm and squishy. We get to sing pretty happy songs at christmas, not realize, not realizing what a tragedy it is that we are in such a state as humanity that holy God has to come down off his throne to fix us, mm-hmm. and instead of mourning that as how horrible that that this should even take place we we go oh look this is sweet no it's not sweet it's an act of war silent night holy night yeah little drummer boy make it cute make it cute and so um yeah and we we get comfortable with that and then we we want to say it's all done And you want to watch a Baptist squirm bring up Acts 2, and then that's a whole other ball game. (laughs) And so, you know, what does it mean when God says, hey, I'm going to do these great things of pouring out my spirit on my sons and daughters? And I can say that because I am a recovering Baptist. So uh, anyway, but we'll keep moving forward. Verse 23, and I will crush his foes before him, and I will strike down those who hate him. So God's promising to fight on David's behalf. Notice he's not saying I'm going to make it so you win everything. I'm going to do this. I, you know this is a complete sense that if the da- that it, it makes complete sense if the enemies David are fighting are spiritual enemies. It doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, it only makes partial sense if it's human enemies. Mm-hmm. David's already proven he's a great warrior. He doesn't need a lot of help with human enemies. Now, if he's facing a spiritual enemy, absolutely he needs god on his side which you know same kind of situation we're in we need god on our side verse 24 my faithfulness and steadfast love again these words coming back shall be with him and my name shall be uh and in my name shall his horn be exalted right back to hannah david's success is wholly uh dependent on the promises that were first uttered by this woman verse 25 I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. So these are the literal geographic boundaries of Israel, but they're also chaos symbols. So God is going to give David dominion over land that extends from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. And so we're we're seeing the expanse that mm. you cannot have this fulfilled. You cannot have this promise fulfilled without a geographic place for the Israel to live. Verse 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So just as God has decreed that David is his son, now David's going to turn around and he's going to respond in kind. Yes, you are my father. And he, you know, he accepts that he affirms that he's accepting this, this destiny that God has decreed for him. Verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Pages sticking together. So I'm just going to read what Tanner wrote here. She says about, this is about verse 26 and 27. They reflect the adoption of the king by the God as a son and the elevation of the king to the position of the most high so that the earthly council mirrors the heavenly one of verses five and eight, Psalms two and Psalm 72. So basically she's saying all of this is happening so that when people look at David's court, they can see what it looks like in heaven. Right. And that's huge to have this like depicted in front of your eyes and to know that every time you stepped into the royal courts and and saw your king, this is a representation of what God is doing in the heavenly realm. So David's rule is more than politics. It is a reflection of a heavenly reality. And, you know, it's a lesser and it's a flawed image, but it still reveals a whole lot. And, you know, the divine council is going to be populated by those adopted into the divine family. Mm-hmm. And those God has claimed and, you know, those that God has claimed, but also those who respond the way that David responds to God. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, God has said he's, uh, David is a son. And then David, like I said, he responds in kind. Verse 28, my steadfast love, I will keep him forever and my covenant will stand firm before him. Repetition, steadfast love. You're getting that this is a huge issue within the psalm. And it's reminding us again, all of these promise, they're based on one thing, God's sustaining power and his love. Verse 29 uh, through 31. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the da- days of the heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish them and punish their transgression with the rod and the iniquity of the sh- and their iniquity with stripes. So, I mean, that's almost verbatim what we read in first Samuel and second Samuel seven. Um, God's going to limit his discipline against David's earthly children. Verse 33, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my promises. Again, verbatim, you know, God's not going to remove his love like from David like he did from Saul. Right. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the sky. So. Tanner notes that this covenant extends far beyond any other biblical covenant. Typically, God reserves the right uh, to to withdraw from his promise and withdraw from this person if the person fails to uphold their end of it. Most of the covenant language is an if-then. If you do this, then I agree to do that. But if you do that, then I'm going to do this. And so for God to make such an encompassing and binding promise that's not contingent on any kind of behavior or moral merit, it simply is in the identity of the person, Uh, It it again, symbolizes the fact that David's rule holds so much more significant than a king who has power in the land. Mm. There is a spiritual um, significance. So J. Clinton McCann says this, uh, the Davidic dynasty is an enduring structure of God's cosmic rule. And I, I only found that quote in Tanner's stuff, and I wish I could uh, could have found the, the uh, original source, because I would love to hear more of what he had to say. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find it online, and I didn't have time for the book to come in to look it up. So the Davidic rule does not exist or persist because humanity got it right. Right. And, you know, it, it really is about God's decree. Well, I mean, there's there's very little
1: in the Bible about things going on because humanity <laughs> got it right. Right. I mean, if, <laughs> we've said it before, and it's worth, I mean, it's worth repeating, I guess, that the whole story of the Bible is we mess things up, and God <laughs> redeems.
0: Yeah, and, and it's through the structure of the kingdom that God reveals his methodology in which we can— Can participate in what he's doing. And so when we look at the kingdom concept, that totally changes, at least in my mind, how we view our participation within the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And when you see David's rule, what does it look like to be a part of a kingdom where you have a king who is a nobody, a king Mm -hmm. who God chose and raised up because it made him happy? How does this change your identity when you're? when that's the kind of king you serve but now this is a king who is the son of god Mm -hmm. and has all of the uh authority of the son of god you can play with this mind experiment this little thought experiment experiment for well i've been doing it for weeks now Mm -hmm. uh so um you know but it goes back to it's not Established by works. It's not merited or gained through effort. And the point of that, which I love the way Heiser puts it in regards to salvation what cannot be gained through uh, moral perfection cannot be lost through moral imperfection. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. And this is why Brueggemann can say this is the taproot of the Messia- messianic theology. This is where we get that ideal of what the evangelical faith looks like. It is the promise that's laid out. Are you going to engage? Are you going to mm-hmm, become mm-hmm. a part of this? And, you know, we know historically David's kingdom, it's not going to last on the earth. Right. We, we, we get that. Uh, the fulfillment can only be found in, in Jesus. And so it's fitting that the psalmist has given us all the spiritual background because now our anticipation can be in a spiritual fulfillment. Right. And if we were just looking at at the earthly reality, then it'd be like, well, why do we need all the spiritual information? We need all the spiritual information because the fulfillment of this covenant is a spiritual fulfillment. That an overflow in 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 its abundance and power becomes a an earthly manifestation, mm-hmm. which is what the, the point of all of this about God being the king over all the universe and king of the heavens, and it's through that overflow and abundance that he becomes manifest as king on earth. It, you've got to have that established order and reign mm-hmm. within heaven so that the earth can follow suit. And so, um, you know, we engage this, this truth revealed in the psalm through faith, because you know it can't be seen yet. We can't see Christ reign on this earth, with the exception being within the individual who says, every time I I walk and I act in that steadfast love, where we heard that 20 times before today, Mm -hmm. um, I'm saying, I am a member of the kingdom of the anointed one, of the Messiah, and his reign over me is far superior to any claim this world might have over me. And so our loving-kindness That we exhibit because it's a that overflow abundance from heaven to us that can now be expressed is a declaration that Jesus really is king in our life, Mm -hmm. and so there's so much tied up in this one psalm. It's a huge, huge concept that we don't hear preached about a lot, right? And
1: well, there's there's it's dense and it's. And as, as much as it's interesting, it's hard to present it in a way that mm-hmm. will, will hold people's interest because it is such a dense passage, and it's a, and it's a long chapter. We don't like to do long chapters in, <laughs> in sermon series.
0: Right? Well, because I have a feeling our next episode, we're going to be, we, we may even be back here. I don't know. We'll see how, we'll get some more in. We'll see how far we got. Because it's at this point that the psalm really shifts. It shifts gears quite drastically, doesn't it? Just boom, in your face. You go from all of this high praise, and here's all these promises, irrevocable promises that God is going to keep no matter what. Yeah, and then he specifically says... I'm not changing my mind on this. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to David, which yeah. I thought that was an interesting line. I'm not going to lie to David. And then in verse 38, it picks up. But now you've cast off, uh, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced your covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls and laid his strongholds in ruins. All the way through verse 45, which I'm not going to, uh, we're just going to read bits and pieces from here on out. We see how the promises of David are, to David have been undone. And 18 times the psalm, the psalmist accuses God. You did this. You allowed this to happen. You're the one making this happen. I mean, the accusation is so scathing. You know, God has humiliated his anointed. So, verse forty-six: How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? So, not only is God seemed to break break His promise, He's even hiding from from David or the psalmist. He, he's not allowing Himself to be seen, and the psalmist is lamenting that God's presence is gone. But I think this is really interesting, and this might have some impact if we ever get onto a study about hell, uh, which we're not doing today, but. The psalmist is equating God's silence with God's wrath and burning fire, God's absence and not being there. To the psalmist, that's what he's, he's equating with these things we usually mm. equate with hell. So I'll let somebody smarter than me work with that for the time being. Verse 47, remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all children of men. What man, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? So the the psalmist is driving home the urgency of his need to hear from God. Death is inescapable. Uh, you know, in the fact that death is inescapable and that we do have these short lives, we need to hear from God right now. The need is immediate. And if you aren't going to hear from God, then everything that we are is just, it's in vain that we have no real purpose. Our purpose is found in the king who rules over heaven. And whose reign is manifest on the earth and so surely God created us for more than vanity's sake but if so we need to know because we need to hear from him and um, you know after all of the truths that have been spoken up to this point within the psalm you can you can't even wrap your, your mind around the idea that we might just be some vanity of God. We, we seem too important in the structure and function of his kingdom, according to what the psalmist had just said. And now we're hearing the exact opposite. And so the psalmist reminds God of the promises he made. But in Psalm 40, in verse 49, it says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? by which you, your faithfulness you swore to David. So the psalmist, um, he asserts his claims upon God's mercies and love are not based on his merit, on what anything that the psalmist has done, but by the nature and being of God, by his character. And he, he is saying, I can make this appeal because you made the promise. That's the basis of me saying these things. Verse 50 Remember, O Lord, how your servant is are mocked. How I bear in my heart the insults of many nations. Verse fifty-one, with which your enemies mock, O Lord. With which you they mock the footsteps of your anointed. So now the the psalmist has expanded the promise. He asks God to remember his servants. That is plural. That's not just a singular. So he includes himself as one who is anointed along with David. And he's reading the promises to encompass David and all who fall under David's authority. So, if you serve the king and you are part of the king's kingdom, then all of the promises that apply to the king now apply to you as one of the subjects, which has some interesting implications when we move forward into the New Testament theology. Now, The psalm ends without resolution. There is no answer to any of the accusations made against God. There's no thunder. There's no burning bush. God doesn't arrive like he does in Job. There is just this gut-wrenching questions left hanging in the air. Uh, The final verse, this is not part of the original composition. So,
1: See, because it takes another quick turn there.
0: Yeah. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Uh, this is actually was added edit- added by an editor to mark the end of book three because the Psalms remember are divided sure. into five books. So now it's like this is the end of this book of Psalms, and we're going to just close the page and move forward into something <laughs> a little more. Well, that <laughs>
1: was interesting.
0: Yeah. So and uh, now, uh, Tanner places this. The date of the psalm to be about 587 BCE, somewhere around in there, because yeah, that's when the good year, I guess. Well, it's when the temple was destroyed. Bad year, yeah, bad year. (laughs) And so she sees this. I I was just, I know. (laughs) I'm
1: just, I'm just saying that because I, you can tell me an ancient date like that, and I'm like,
0: I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, she, she thinks that if you, if this is when it happened, and it's in response to the destruction of the temple. And, you know, this would be a very real set of questions for the nation of Israel to ask at this point in time, because this is, the temple's been destroyed, the ark has been carried off. What in the world's going yep. on? Where is God's presence? God's presence not with us because the ark's not there, as we just had seen uh, demonstrated by the story of Uzzah. Sure. And so that's that is one possibility, and I don't want to neglect that it is a possibility, but whether or not that's the correct date, and the psalmist is speaking of something that is currently happening in the lives of Israel, or it's looking forward uh, to what's happening, um, the point is everything the psalmist is talking about is will become a reality, and this isn't this isn't an exercise in abstractions. This isn't just theological musings. This. This is a response to real-life, real-world situations, and the psalmist is speaking to the reality of his age. So um, if, if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah who's going to restore the Messianic throne or the Davidic throne, mm-hmm. and we're sitting here waiting for this to be manifest on the earth, this part of the psalm actually can speak quite well and quite deeply deeply to us because there is that sense of urgency that life is short i need to hear from you now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i don't know anyone who passes the age of 30 who doesn't have that awareness of how short it is and how death it's looming it's getting closer right i mean i'm a grandma now that's crazy and i'm like you know in all reality you know, I'm somewhere around getting close if I haven't already passed that halfway mark of my life and how much time do I have left to do all the things that I want to do mm-hmm. and so you know we we can we can recount the promises and we can talk about the realities and and the truth of who God is and how he's manifest on this earth but when we get really honest Few of us really experience resolution in this lifetime. We're left really like that psalmist is left with a bunch of unanswered questions. Mm -hmm. And it's really only the bravest and the most honest among us who are willing to go to God and go, why? Why did you let this happen? How long are you going to let this happen? And you need to remember me, not because of who I am or how great and faithful I've I've been or what great works I've done. I need you to remember me because you are so great and faithful and you do great works. You were the one who calms the chaos. By the the nature and essence of your very being, this is why I can appeal to you Mm -hmm. to remember your promise. You said it. And this is the basis of it. You said it. I believed it because of who you are. And so I expect it to happen. I can trust that it can happen because when you say something, it does happen. Right. And so the psalmist is very good at at bringing us to this place where we have to recognize the question do we really believe our god is trustworthy even when even when we can't see evidence of him being trustworthy in this realm that's what faith really is about right and you know our faith does not have to be Makes sense. And it doesn't have to be justified to a lot of onlookers and go, Oh, look how God's blessed me and everything's great and wonderful because God loves me. It, sometimes we just have to be okay living in a world where people do mock and insult us because we look foolish, mm-hmm. because we believe, again, not in ourselves, not in our ability, but who God says He is. And one day, the Messiah, Jesus, is going to reign on this earth. And it's going to be because he is the king in heaven and in earth, and he can encompass both those roles. Right, and so I this I had no idea how much the psalm would take me. Like again, yeah, no, these it's,
1: it's a lot of information. It's really dense, and it's been kind of interesting to to pick it apart because
0: yeah, I generally don't
1: I, I generally don't care to look at the psalms I, I, because it does kind of start to feel like just a list of things. Mm-hmm. Um. It, now I love I love listening to them when they're sung and I, you oh know, yeah the, it kind of draws you in but that's poetry you uh-huh. know? and so but yeah it's it's just packed really full so I'm I'm sure we'll pick apart a little more of this or uh, actually
0: maybe? we're gonna call that quits because okay. then we're gonna get you know, back into Second Samuel seven and we're gonna look at the last part of that chapter and we're gonna look at David's response mm-hmm. and why it is just kind of a blow your mind response and how it kind of fits. We're going to pick up some things that we talked about in this uh, in Psalms 89. And so again, we're going to go back to that intermingling of mm-hmm. the two passages and why you need both to understand one or the other. Okay. So cool.
1: Yeah. Well, that sounds good. Well, I guess that's a good a place to drop as any um, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, hope you're looking forward to next week. In the meantime, be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC, on all the social media, ravencreeksc.com's website, where you can find show notes for some of the shows. <laughs> We're still getting around to finish those out.
0: Patience, Grace. <laughs> um,
1: and then, uh, Tending Our Nets, new show with, uh, Joshua Sherman. Mm-hmm. Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington, Commentarians with Joe Zaragoza, and, uh, good times to be had all around (laughs) so join us there and be part of what's going on and we will see you later thanks
0: bye you've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write us a review on itunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash raven creek sc As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.